and welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. This is Inside Education episode 426. My name is Sean Delaney. I am a primary teacher and teacher educator. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, published by Routledge, is now available as an audiobook. You can follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. And you can email me by writing to Inside Education Podcast at yahoo.com. All previous episodes of Inside Education are available for listening or downloading if you go to my website, seandelaney.com, and click on the Podcasts tab. On this week's podcast, I get to interview my first international guest in person since the pandemic sent us all online. Professor Mark Winchettel is someone whose work I've admired for many years in the area of teacher education and science teaching. He is a professor of science teaching and learning at the University of Washington. His research interests deal with the early career development of science teachers, in particular their trajectories towards ambitious and equitable pedagogy. He is widely published in education and he was the lead author of the 2018 book Ambitious Science Teaching. In 2023, Harvard Education Press will publish his new book, A Primer on Climate Change, Teaching for Understanding, Resilience and Justice. And as Mark explains in the podcast, all aspects of the title matter when responding to climate change, understanding, resilience and justice. You'll really like this podcast if you're interested in science education at secondary or even primary school level. Mark illustrates his ideas with concrete examples that bring them to life. You'll also find the podcast helpful if you want to teach about climate change in a way that is constructive and prompts action, rather than just raising concern or prompting anxiety in students. The podcast will be of interest to anyone who is interested in teacher education generally and science teacher education in particular. As a teacher educator myself, I have become interested in the idea of equipping student teachers with core practices of teaching, or high leverage practices, in order to give them a broad and useful foundation for starting teaching. When I spoke to Professor Mark Winchettel at the University of Washington recently, I first asked him what he understands by the term core practice, or high leverage practice, as it refers to teaching. I work with primarily pre-service science teachers when I do my university teaching and I always ask them, what would you expect to see or hear in a classroom where all students have a chance to learn things that they feel are relevant and engaging for them? And I use the the phrase see and hear to get my pre-service teachers used to the idea that any knowledge they have about teaching is always embodied in practice. So core practices are ways of interacting both with ideas and with children in classrooms that can be described, they can be emulated by others, but we're always careful to help teachers understand that core practices are not to be just rotely copied or gone through like a routine or some wooden formulaic set of things that you do with kids. For example, I can give you an example of a core practice. So one of the most important for secondary science teachers is at the beginning of every unit of instruction, we want them to elicit the ideas that their children already have about whatever the topic is. 
And let's say the topic is something like force and motion. The teacher would engage in perhaps showing a phenomena to their students. Maybe it's a sports phenomena that involves velocity and unequal forces and imbalanced forces, that kind of thing. And they might ask several questions of the students, like, what do you see going on in this video clip of a soccer game? And where might the forces be um, that you're, you seem to be looking at when you watch this video? And the practice really is a flexible one because from the very moment you ask that initial question and show, let's say, a video, the classroom can take many different twists and turns. Kids can offer different kinds of ideas and teachers can respond in different ways. And so even though eliciting ideas is a core practice, it can appear very different in different classrooms. And it's made to be flexible, to be adaptable to the context of the classroom, uh, the ideas that students bring up, how students connect that phenomena to their everyday lived experiences, all of those have to be taken into account at a moment's no notice by that teacher. And is it the belief then that all of teaching can be decomposed or can be broken up into these kinds of practices, such as eliciting students' ideas? I, I would say the answer is no. We came up with four core practices in our book, Ambitious Science Teaching, because we wanted, we asked ourselves, if, if our novices could learn to be good at just a few things in their interactions with kids in classrooms, what would those three or four or five things be? And so we made these brutal decisions about what not to include as well as what to include and then how to frame those practices. So even though they're called core practices and they are indeed important practices and they let the teacher and students do a lot of intellectual work together in the classroom there's much more to teaching absolutely much more in fact i often take the book that we're reading and i hold it up and i say there is nothing in this book that will work for you in the classroom until you have developed respectful and trusting relationships with all your kids in the classroom if you don't have that nothing will work so we do also feel that establishing those relationships with kids is probably the most important thing you can do, especially if you're trying to go beyond the status quo of teaching. If you, your classroom is going to be a place where you really need kids to be simply compliant with whatever orders you give them, if you're just trying to cover the curriculum without too much worry about whether kids have made sense of it, then maybe you don't need to build relationships with kids. But we, we just do not feel that we're doing the best by our children with status quo teaching. So does that suggest then that core practices are a kind of a hand-picked selection of practices that beginning teachers need? And maybe as you progress in your career, you might, they might fade into the background a bit. I would say they wouldn't fade into the background, but I would say that as teachers gain experience, and we've observed early career teachers in their first, second, third years of teaching, what they do is they retain these practices, but they add a lot of nuance to what they do with children, how they ask questions, how they get very quiet and marginalized children to actually engage with the work, 
how they get students to represent their thinking visibly to their peers. Though that's another set of core practices, but they become more nuanced and more flexible. They don't fade into the background per se, because they are essential for the kinds of learning that ambitious science teaching is all about. If we move on then to, to ambitious science teaching, and indeed that is the title of one of your books, that is the title of your, of your book that is already published. What is ambitious science teaching? Ambitious science teaching is the kind of teaching that anyone can do, even a novice who is not even credentialed to, yet to go into a classroom. All that's required to be an ambitious science teacher, according to us, is that the, the teacher is very willing to constantly improve their practice, to take risks to improve their practice, try out things that they are not comfortable with, and to base any kind of development or changes they think they want to make in their teaching, to base it on how their children are responding, not base it on how comfortable the teacher feels in enacting those practices. We got some pushback from some teachers when the book came out and they saw that title as ambitious. And some of them said, well, I work very hard. Am I not an ambitious science teacher? And we did not want to imply that teachers who we think are miracle workers, the things that they accomplish every day with very few resources is amazing. So in a sense, all teachers are ambitious, but we we decided to, to kind of create a brand, uh, to use kind of a vulgar term about it, a brand that represents educators who are trying to systematically improve their efficacy by really paying attention to how kids respond to their teaching. So as well as having this disposition to wanting to improve, there must be other ingredients that are important too. And I'm thinking particularly of the teachers own scientific knowledge? Yes, because ambitious science teaching really prompts students to understand a smaller set of science ideas in much greater depth. The teacher has to have a matching or surpassing ability to understand something in great depth. So for example, if we want sixth grade students to understand the greenhouse effect, which is key to understanding the origins of climate change, we expect students to be able to explain in great depth what is happening, beginning with how the sun emits a full electromagnetic spectrum and whether what are the characteristics of those different kinds of radiation. How do they travel through space? That, that, how does that radiation travel through space? How does it interact with our atmosphere? the Earth's surface, how are different kinds of um, gases in the atmosphere responsible for absorbing infrared, and how does infrared get re-radiated. So I've listed off a number of things, and we expect children as young as sixth grade to be able to put all those ideas together, not fact by fact, but into a narrative that makes sense to them, a cause and effect narrative. So you can imagine then how sophisticated a teacher's knowledge would have to be. And I'm not talking about sophisticated knowledge so that the teacher can lecture each day. That actually can be done by somebody with very marginal understandings of a phenomena because they could just read off a 
you know, uh, an index card if they want to. So teachers do have to have a flexible and deep understanding. They also have to understand the numerous ways that children might see connections between the greenhouse effect and the children's everyday lives and their interests. And that that's just another layer of what we expect of ambitious science teachers. And apart from the, that topic and the topics related to the greenhouse effect, what, what other topics are bellwether topics when teaching science at middle and high school level? You know, in other words, I mean, what are the ones that kind of sort out the, 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 the really effective teachers and knowledgeable teachers from those who really will not be effective in the classroom? Wow, the, the biggest ideas that can be taught in a secondary classroom, for example? I'll just pick biology as an example. I think that for teachers to understand how ecosystems function in the world is becoming increasingly important. They are complex, almost systems within systems, which is what differentiates the study of biology from the study of chemistry or physics. It's biology is all about different levels of nested systems. And understanding how ecosystems work, if you get a grasp on that, you can extend your knowledge to explain a lot of phenomena that happen in the world. If you understand, for example, the Yellowstone National Park here in the U.S. is a very diverse, it's the largest ecosystem that has not been impacted by human beings uh, to date. But if students understand how the Yellowstone ecosystem works, they can translate that understanding. They should be able to translate it to how a coral reef functions and why those coral reefs might be in jeopardy right now because of ocean warming or acidification. They should be able to problem solve using their knowledge of ecosystems in addition to transferring knowledge from one ecosystem to another. So that would be another an example of a big idea, but also how we expect that idea not to be inert, but something that gets used to solve other kinds of problems. I really like that idea that you can transfer the knowledge of, say, the, the nat- national park to the knowledge of a coral reef. How small can that get? You know, I mean, if somebody if they can understand, say, the ecosystem of a tree, of an oak tree, is that too small? Like, would you, would you have to kind of go at least to the forest in order to to be able to get the full nuances of the ecosystem? You would have to go to the forest level uh, to understand an ecosystem. However, you mentioned a tree. A tree does act as a system. It has inputs and outputs. It has a capacity in how it can be treated, uh, how the temperature and humidity can cause it to grow in particular ways or perhaps even shut down its growth. You know, trees in the temperate zones go through go through the seasons and they drop their leaves. So the, the, the tree and how it functions is a system. It's just not an ecosystem. Let me add, though, this incredible finding. This is a scientific finding uh, from just the last few years. Researchers have found that trees actually extend their roots out to other trees and make contact with those other trees through microzoria, these tiny microscopic fungi. And a tree can actually cause some chemical changes in the fungi that are in and around their roots. And they actually send chemical signals to other trees that the host tree or the home tree is actually 
being invaded by some insects that are causing it damage, it can send out a warning. A few years ago, we would have said, that is science fiction. But it turns out to be absolutely documentable now. And it's almost common knowledge in some areas. It is just amazing the connectedness of everything in the natural world. It's, uh, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. You're involved in preparing teachers at second level, at least in the University of Washington anyway, to, take, uh, to teach science. How do you decide if someone is ready to take independent responsibility for teaching science at secondary school level? That's a good question because that, the answer starts at the very beginning of our program when we interview candidates. One of the red flags that we often hear from people wanting to get into the program is we'll ask about a classroom experience that they have had because we do require them to visit classrooms and to do observations in classrooms to make sure they want to teach. Uh, So they come to us in this interview situation and we might ask, so what did you hear students talking about in the classroom? Or how do you think students would respond to this kind of a lesson on force and motion? And often the candidate cannot, for some reason, they cannot talk about other people's thinking or what children might be doing or thinking. They can talk about the science, but they simply cannot imagine how another human being thinks about, let's say, the natural world or other kinds of phenomena that can be explained by science in their lives. And those people tend not to be admitted into our program. So it begins with our program valuing a candidate's capacity to really pay attention to students. What engages them? Who is participating? Why or why not? These are dispositions that are essential. It's the human side of science, really, isn't it? Yes, and the particular kind of teaching that we try to emulate and model in the program is entirely responsive to kids' ideas that they have in the classroom. If you cannot even consider children's ideas or experiences as part of the curriculum, you are going to have a hard time doing what we call ambitious science teaching because it is supposed to be, it's supposed to build on what kids feel is important in the phenomena that they're studying. So if they can't do that, they can't do ambitious science teaching. Some teachers feel like it's useless to elicit students' ideas. Why do we care that we find out what students already know about ecosystems or force in motion? Let's just tell them the scientific explanation. Those are not the people that come through this program. How important is the teaching of science at primary or elementary school level? It's absolutely critical. And I don't know what the situation is in Europe, but in the U.S., there just isn't enough time devoted to teaching science. Over the past, I would say, 20 years, there has been such a focus on basic literacy. And of course, basic literacy is absolutely important. But all of the testing, which drives the curriculum and drives what teachers spend time on, The testing is really all about mathematics and speaking and listening and writing. It's not, you know, social studies has taken a backseat. Science has taken a backseat, if you can imagine that. And the arts are almost nowhere to be found in some school districts, which is absolutely sad. Now, that being said, I want to go back to the ambitious science teaching kind of way of thinking about working with kids. 
we designed that whole framework for secondary teachers. But as soon as that framework became more public and we have it on a website, a number of elementary teachers said, I can do that in my classroom with my children. I can have those conversations. I can engage them in scientific argument and modeling, for example. And I had a recent doctoral student named Michelle Salgado, who now works at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Her doctoral work was documenting how a kindergarten class worked with force and motion ideas. And it was all around the phenomena of how can somebody little push somebody big off the end of a playground slide. So the kids started off this unit of instruction by going out into the schoolyard and they took turns going down a slide and they would knock off this big stuffed animal at the bottom. And over the course of that unit, they did things that we normally would expect high school juniors and seniors to do. They would argue whether gravity was only at the top of the slide or was gravity also at the bottom of the slide. There was one child who argued that yes, there was gravity even on the ground at the bottom of the slide because he argued if you dug a hole at the bottom of the slide and then went down the slide, you would fall all the way down into the hole. So what's pulling you into the hole? It's got to be gravity. So we have been surprised, pleasantly so, by elementary teachers from K to 6. They are amazing. The next question, the answer you'll probably say has come already, but I'm going to ask you anyway. If there was one piece of advice that you would share with science teachers listening to this podcast that could enhance their teaching immediately, what would it be? I would say to pay attention to discourse in the classroom, because if you can generate productive discourse among children about science ideas, it has to be really academically productive discourse. That's what the research term is. It's not just talk, it's academically productive. So what kind of scaffolds would you use to get a small group of three students to talk productively about some phenomena that they're, they're trying to study together or they're doing a lab activity? How do you set it up so none of those three students feels like they have to push back from the table and let the other two do all the talking? How do you invite conversations at the whole class level when kids are so socially conscious about how they come off to their peers that they might not want to say anything. There are a number of things that teachers can do to create a welcoming and trustful environment for kids to participate and talk in small group and in whole group. But I would say focus on improving your talk. And teachers can actually begin this without any instruction. They can take data on who is talking in their classroom and who is doing most of the dialogue. You can have a peer, one of your colleagues as a teacher, can come in and sit in the back of your classroom and they can videotape or they can just mark off on a piece of paper how many minutes have you as a teacher been talking away and how many minutes in total have your kids had a chance to talk. Generally, we think that productive talk in a classroom is a process of sense-making and meaning-making, and that's why it is so valuable. And probably one of the reasons it's so challenging for teachers is that a lot of them did not experience that kind of science teaching themselves from their own teachers. Absolutely true. I think to a person, nearly every novice who comes into our teacher preparation program, every teacher that I work with who's a practicing teacher and it's a professional development setting, 
they almost all say, I never learned science this way. And that does make it more challenging for them because they have no mental models. They have to create mental models of what might this look like in my classroom. And that's why we try to show practicing teachers videos of, let's say, classroom dialogue where the classroom is the same grade level as theirs and the children look the same as theirs. You know, in the U.S., we have classrooms where the entire classroom is children are all white. They're middle class or upper middle class. This is very different from cl the classrooms just across town in another neighborhood. The, the class is much more diverse and they might be working class. And you cannot show a video of a particular classroom that's all white students and they've got all this access. You could just tell they've got all this access to technology and it's a very privileged environment. And that is not going to convince a teacher in a diverse classroom that these kinds of this kind of non-standard teaching is going to work. One of the reasons that we're talking at this time, Mark, is because you're bringing out a new book on teaching climate change. And I have some questions related to that. And the first one is, how do you motivate or inspire students to be interested in climate change as a topic in science? I think that the greatest challenge we face around motivation is that children are already quite aware that climate change is happening, acutely aware. And they can just see it on their phones. You know, they scroll through their phones every day. Even children as young as like third graders have their own phones. They, they can see drought, wildfire, sea level rise, and all this language is associated with it. So the question is not probably how do we get kids motivated, but how do we address climate change in ways that don't elevate eco-anxiety or eco-grief? Those are the things that have to be managed. Also, it helps, it helps to teach climate change when you're taking a look at a local phenomenon, some way in which climate change is impacting or could impact your neighborhood, your community. If you can locate it there, kids will be much more engaged and they will be ready to think about solutions. That's another thing that I advocate for in this book is to not just teach about all the ways in which Earth systems are going haywire, but to explore all of the solutions that are out there. And children and teachers are really generally not aware of the beautiful bounty of solutions that are possible, both solutions that are technological innovations, solutions that involve the cost of renewables going down, or that uh, we can change human behavior like prevent food waste, for example, or changes in diets. Tons of solutions. They need to be woven in and elevated within a climate change curriculum. I think it's really important that you mentioned there about the risk of climate anxiety or uh, anxiety, because I know as a beginning teacher, I was teaching fourth grade and I uh, I know I frightened the life out of them about the ozone layer at the time when I when I was starting. And it's something that um, it just like it wasn't a productive way to deal with it by just making them more anxious. You had asked about how it's why it's so difficult for teachers to teach in a non-standard way or teach in a different way than they were taught themselves. And climate change adds one more layer on top of that, because not only do we want teachers to approach the subject matter differently, that subject matter is so complicated and interwoven compared to other 
other science ideas that you see in the United States uh, national standards, NGSS, Next Generation Science Standards. Climate change is what they call a hyper object. It is layer upon layer of different phenomena that are all interwoven with one another. And so that in itself makes it more difficult to teach, teach that and teach it in a more ambitious way. Teachers often say, I was not trained to teach this way, and I was not trained to teach about anything related to climate change. So if all of these ideas are interwoven, how do you unpack them for teachers and decide what the key ideas that students need to know are? That's a, a million dollar question. And we are so early in the trajectory of how we are understanding what should be addressed as core climate change related ideas and when should we introduce those ideas across the grade spectrum. We're still trying to figure that out. It seems, for example, that going back to the idea of solutions, that solutions, whether they are changes in human behavior or technological solutions or a combination, they should be threaded all the way through every, every attempt to teach at every grade level. It should be a part of it. But then there are some clear aspects of climate change we would have to teach early and touch back on it repeatedly, like the greenhouse effect is what drives every other part of climate change. Kids would have to understand the greenhouse effect. But then a lot of teachers think that if I teach a greenhouse effect, I guess I'm done after that because it heats up the earth and what else do kids have to know? Well, it has climate change has impacts on ecosystems, particular kinds of impacts. It is causing them to behave in ways that they don't normally behave. So then impacts on ecosystems has to be addressed in some form. There also has to be something about the oceans. There has to be something about the cryosphere, you know, the frozen parts of the earth. People are only now coming to realize how important the Greenland ice sheets are and the Antarctic ice sheets, because if those ice sheets, which are land-based, if they begin to break off and fall into the sea, it will trigger a tip at what's called a tipping point. It's another thing kids should really know about are what are these tipping points? The tipping point is a, a part of a phenomena where something happens like huge ice sheets being uh, going into the ocean and, and making sea levels rise. But a tipping point is something that changes how a system operates and it begins to operate in a chaotic way, unpredictable, which goes against everything we learn about science, right? We want to learn about how does the system operate? Well, if you reach tipping points with the Amazon going from rainforest to dry grassland, it's irreversible and that system's going to operate completely differently than it does now. Scary, but that has to be addressed by kids. Systems thinking in general. And it's not just, I mean, it's systems, but it's also the scale of this. I mean, the scale of these ice sheets, like it's not like, you know, we might be familiar with ice in our fridge or something like that. Or maybe if people went skiing, they might be familiar with, you know, snow. But like this is at a different level of scale. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was a New York Times, um, New York Times um, reporter named Brett Stevenson, who just recently took a trip to Greenland. And he observed firsthand these enormous glaciers. Some of them are six stories high. It's almost inconceivable unless you've actually seen it yourself. But he saw them calving, which means the ice sheets are breaking off and falling into the ocean. He saw that firsthand. And he was a bit of a climate skeptic, which is unusual for the New York Times. 
but he recently wrote an article in which he wrote about how that changed his thinking about climate change, the imminence of climate change, the scale of some of these phenomena. We want kids to study them, but if they saw, for example, the runoff, the liquid runoff from the Greenland ice sheets, it is something like a trillion gallons a month. It is, it is something that is hard to wrap your head around. Given this scale, what can students implement easily or quickly to reduce their own carbon footprint? Or is that, what you would, is that one of the things you would hope they would get from learning about climate change in school? So talking about your own climate footprint has two components to it. One is, yes, if you do some calculations about, you know, how long do you leave the lights on in your house and how big is your house? Do you take your bike to work or the bus or do your parents drive you? You can figure out your carbon footprint. And that does help you realize that the U.S., we see why we are the biggest contributors to climate change. Historically, the U.S. is number one. Currently, China per capita is number one. But we here in the U.S. bear bear a huge amount of responsibility for climate change. So kids figuring out their individual footprint creates an an awareness in them of how they could be impacting climate change. But there's something else that's important. The idea of carbon footprint was invented by a petroleum company. British Petroleum came up with that idea by one of their PR people a couple of decades ago. And the underlying reason they came up with it was to try to shove all of the responsibility for fossil fuel emissions from British Petroleum to the individual consumer. That is the origins of the climate footprint. And that's what makes me hesitant to use that as an idea with kids. Uh, that, that's that's. I mean, it's it's interesting, and it's not at all surprising when you say it. But uh, but it it still is interesting. And what can schools do then to reduce their impact on climate change? Well, kids can do a really good job. There is a lot of documentation now about kids going around the school and just saying, "What can we do? What can we change?" You know, in high school, we have this tradition in the U.S. called prom, which is where senior students, boys and girls, they dress up and they go to the dance. And so one thing that some schools have done is ask, how can we make prom more green? How can we produce less waste and use less energy in the process? I don't know why that is a thing in some schools about how to do that with prom night, but uh, schools have done that. And kids are remarkably good at just going around the school and around the school grounds and just saying, where, where are we losing energy or wasting energy? Where are we also wasting the opportunity to recycle things rather than just throw them away? So this idea about this, you know, like single-use plastics, kids are all over that, even though that is not too directly connected to climate change. Kids kind of couple those two things together. Plastics pollution and climate change, they think, are almost the same thing. They're, They're not. But kids are quite capable of being creative about where their schools can save energy and maybe even take a leadership role in the community on doing these things. You mentioned there about the New York Times journalist who at least initially was skeptical about climate change. But one of the things is that children probably will encounter skeptical views about climate change on social media or maybe at home. How do teachers remain credible when they're teaching about climate change in the face of skepticism in the wider community, you know, however you know, marginal that is? 
So it really does matter where you are geographically located. You'll have a greater percentage. If you're teaching in some of the oil producing states, typically in the South and the United States, you will probably have kids being exposed more to skeptical points of view on on social media, but also on local TV, even billboards, talk in the community. And so it differs a lot. But what I write about in the book is that teachers may not have to be quite as concerned as they think they would have to be with children's skepticism, because recent polls show that among 13 to 18-year-olds, teenagers, the adolescents and secondary level, about 85% of them think that climate change is real and that human beings are the cause of it. 85%, they actually have a higher percent of kids believe that than adults. Adults are about 5 to 10% less sure about climate change and the human causes. So teachers do not have to be quite so apprehensive. Nonetheless, they will have some kids in the classroom who are skeptical. The last thing we want teachers to do is to set up classroom conditions that treat the skeptical view as equal in importance and deserving of equal time and conversation as a scientific view. That is just a losing proposition, and we would never want teachers to do that. Some teachers have taken a kind of subterranean track on this. They talk about the greenhouse effect, for example, and its impact on human beings or the ecosystems, but they never mention the phrase climate change. And so their kids are with them all the way. Even the skeptical kids are, that makes sense. Oh, the greenhouse effect, I can see how that increases the air temperature and I can see what effect that has on ocean ecosystems or the temperate zone or whatever. And the teacher is actually teaching climate change, but not labeling it as such. And a lot of skeptical kids will say, I, I think I get the science. But then the teacher does, in, at the end, have to say, and this is, this is called climate change. This is, this is what we're talking about. I actually met with a farming family myself recently, and they're beef farmers, small to medium beef farmers. But they said that, you know, they, they have a, a system where they have, you know, high quality standards and they're doing a good job. But they're saying now they, they will have to consider giving it up. And they're afraid that, that first of all, two things could happen, either they could be contributing if it if it happens if that happens on a large scale that it could contribute to a shortage of food or it could contribute to even worse situation that poorer quality meat would continue to be provided but it would be imported into Ireland rather than being home produced is that a, is that the kind of dilemma that that a fam that say a farming family might actually bring to this in school yes i mean the reason that we have lost a lot of trees in the world, both in the in the U.S. and in, in the U.K. and in Europe in general, and in Brazil, is because of beef farming, and to clear and burn down a lot of biomass in the form of trees, which store a ton of carbon, and then that land is for grazing, and even the whole process of producing beef. After that, after they're grazing, they have to be butchered. They have to be, it has to be packaged, refrigerated, transported. All of that is what we call energy intensive. So eating meat, in particular beef, is, I hate to say it because I'm from Iowa originally, which is a farming state in the U.S. I hate to say it, but beef production is, is a challenge for us to talk about. There is no getting away from it. I, there might be better ways to raise beef. But nonetheless, it just creates a lot of greenhouse gases in one way or another.
going back to what we said earlier about, you know, you talked about, say, the, the torrents of water coming me- melting in Greenland. How can teachers make ideas about climate change more concrete or more human for students to understand, given the scale of it and given that few people will have experience of that scale? I think it's challenging unless you are immersed as a human being in something where you can see the scale is enormous, like being up front in a glacier, like children who live in Alaska can comprehend the changes in glaciers because some of them can look out the window and see the retreat of glaciers, or they can see land ice just falling off at the edge of a harbor or something into, into a bay. They see that. Other kids don't see those things. They cannot. So they, we have to rely on video, for example, showing, showing some of these dramatic effects. And some things like just the full scale of the ocean. I mean, when you talk about scale, just recognizing that the ocean is heating up, like in the top 700 meters of the ocean, there is as much or more heat stored there than there is in the entire atmosphere over our heads. It's hard for kids to understand the expanse of the ocean. There's just, even if they live next to the ocean, it's, it's hard for them to just grasp it. So uh, teachers are still experimenting with how to communicate scale, the size. And by scale, we almost always mean on the extreme large end rather than the small end. Yeah. One way of doing it is probably what you said at the start about getting to know the impact of it on your local environment. But but that's still, in, a, in most cases, unless you are in Alaska or somewhere like that, it won't give you that sense of scale. Yeah, I mean, every teacher who wants to teach about climate change is probably scrambling to think, how does climate change show up in our community? How can we make it visible? And as you said, concrete to our students. And sometimes it will be visible, but not super impressive. Like for example, there are, there's a lot of coastline in the United States. And one of the solutions that we think is really important for communities to do who live on coastlines is to maintain their wetlands and marshes on the coastline because they serve as buffers from rising sea levels and storm surges. So that's treated that restoration or preservation of coastal areas is something that is a solution and it's worth studying. And it, of course, involves ecosystems as well. Uh, But it's not dramatic. It's something that you can see in your own community. You could see how adults and other elders are working to preserve that. You can even participate as a school, but it's not, bang, wow, that's really cool. It's not that kind of uh, experience for kids. Nonetheless, it is very helpful for them to understand that climate change is here and it impacts our community. What are reliable sources of data for students who are learning about, and for teachers as well, who are learning about climate change? And, and, and I suppose as well related to that is, how do you encourage teachers or students to test how reliable a source is? So there's a little bit of controversy around the, the degree to which we should allow students to go out on their own and just fish around the whole web to find data. There is a media literacy movement in the U.S., which has been going on for a couple decades, and it just refers to the idea of kids in our K-12 schools need to be able to understand what information that they access online is credible and accurate. And so people have media literacy programs. Now, the, the, this may sound strange, but I think with climate change, it is nearly impossible to train students 
to go out and try to determine whether certain kinds of climate data are reliable and credible, because part of what media literacy asks kids to do is when you go to this website and you see that data, are the people who actually create that data, are they reputable practitioners? Do they come from institutions that are credible? Children are not going to know that because a lot of these institutions, some of them are not even in the U.S. China is doing incredible work. India is doing incredible work. African, African scientists, how would you know if their institutions are credible? So what I advise teachers to do is think about all of the credible sources. They happen to be related to the U.S. government. So NASA, NOAA, the World Health Organization, the UN, there's probably a list of about 15 sources that actually over the last few years have developed amazing websites. Their websites have been much improved. They provide a lot of original data. They provide visualizations where they take the data and they create a kind of infographic out of it that's really accessible for kids. That's the kind of thing that I would urge teachers to focus students on known reputable outlets for lots of data that's pretty credible. And then the children themselves probably will want to present data or to communicate their understanding of of climate change. How do they go about doing that? Well, they have to have a reason for why they're showing it. You'd never want a student just to get up and show a graph for the graph's sake. It's typically in in a classroom where we're doing this ambitious work uh, around climate change, we're focusing on a particular phenomenon. Like we might, we might focus on the question, how vulnerable is our coastal community that we live in? How vulnerable is it to sea level rise? So with that as a kind of a core question, students in that class can take up different pieces of that question. And a student presenting uh, something about the Greenland ice sheets that's something that other kids in the class have, are not presenting on. But this student says, this is important, even though we're 5,000 miles away. And here's why. Here's the data. So that's the context in which kids can feel ownership about certain kinds of data and even ownership over some very cool ideas that their peers have not thought of using data and data visualizations. And how would you advise teachers then to assess their students' knowledge of climate change? This is where it helps if you understand the science, uh, if you're a teacher. So you probably want to create a rubric for yourself before a unit of instruction even begins. Like, what are my goals for students? If I want them to understand sea level rise, am I going to want them to understand the very origins of this with the greenhouse effect? Or are we going to start that narrative by talking about Antarctica or Greenland or something like that. So they have to decide how much of a phenomena they're going to teach and what do I expect kids to know about that in pretty explicit terms. And almost for sure, teachers are going to have to read up. If they're going to do any kind of teaching about any kind of science topic, not just climate change, but any science topic, I I've always advise teachers do some extra reading about the topic just to make sure you know enough to be able to create valid assessments for your kids. I want to go on and ask you some other questions about research, but before we do that, your book, when is the book coming out? It's probably going to come out at the end of summer, at the beginning of this coming fall of 2023. Okay, and it's called Teaching Climate Change? 
It's called a primer for teaching climate change, and it's focusing on deep understanding, resilience for kids, for kids to understand the social justice picture around climate change, weaving together the science, their own personal resilience for kids and teachers, and the social justice perspective, which cannot be separated from climate change. There is no, that's not a separate issue. It is completely baked in. And the publisher? Uh, Harvard Ed Press. How did you become interested, Mark, in education research? Well, I was a teacher myself. I had a career for 13 years in the Midwest as a middle school science teacher. And I became absolutely enamored with how kids are learning. And I had children who learned in very different ways. And that that kind of got amplified when technology got introduced into my classroom. We had these things called computers that came into the classroom. And then I saw some of my kids who were kind of on the margins or not participating, all of a sudden they were absolutely engaged. And it just piqued my interest about how kids learn and what kind of resources and tools that they prefer and what goals do they have for themselves. So that just propelled me towards getting a master's degree. And those courses were so interesting to me that I thought I will go all the way and do the PhD. And how do you carry out your research today? Well, I do a lot of research on early career teachers. So what we do is we follow a number of teachers through a program, a preparation program like we have here at the University of Washington. We usually study about five programs around the country at the same time, just to get some variation. And we want to find out what aspects prepare them to be what we call well-started beginners. We use that term because we don't expect novice teachers to be great educators compared to people who've been in the business for 10 years, but they can be well-started beginners in that they have some basic understanding of what these core practices are they should use and with students and why, and then they can improve on that. They learn how to improve their practice on their own without being in this program, preparatory program anymore. So that's a well-started beginner. So we just study what kind of supports they need. Like we study their mentors and their relationship with the experienced teacher that they're paired up with in their host classroom. And what are those interactions like? Most recently, we've, we've studied the novice's use of agency in asking their mentor, can I have an opportunity to do this in my teaching? Rather than just copying what the mentor does or going through this process we call reproducing somebody else's teaching, can these novices gin up the courage it takes to ask their mentor to try something, to experiment with something unique that will teach both the kids something and it will help the novice understand something about teaching? How do you find the time to write, I mean, the book, but also the articles you you write? I have to set aside some things in my life because I am what's called a deliberative writer. It's just another word for slow, (laughs) slow and careful. So I think about writing almost all the time. I'm not crazy and I'm not talking from a crazy or neurotic perspective, but I, when I take a walk during the day, just for exercise, I will always bring a notebook in my back pocket. And often I think about a difficult thing that I'm writing, like a paragraph that just won't leave me alone. So I take the notebook with me as I'm, I'm out walking. It seems like a simple thing, but I do a lot of those small things to create the opportunities and the time 
to add to my writing. And I constantly revise things. My typical research article that people read, it is probably about my 14th version of that article. And that surprises my students because I teach a class in scholarly writing here at the university. And when I say I do 14 versions of it, I could see and hear gasps in the, in the classroom. Oh my God, I don't know if I can do that. And you find the notebook on your walks is better than, say, a voice recorder. Yes, because in a notebook, I can see all my, all my ideas at one time. I can cross off my ideas. And so you can't really do that with a voice memo. And a voice memo is very like linear. Like you have to listen to the whole thing. You know, you can't jump around. My eyes can jump around on a notebook page really easily. And who is research in education for? Is this a trick question? Not at all. I mean, is it for teachers? Is it for researchers? You know, who, who is it for? Okay, I was smiling when I asked that question. Here's, here's one thing I worry about in regard to that question. A lot of research is written at the theoretical level. And it is often inaccessible to teachers. Teachers also don't have time to read that research, even if it was accessible. And so I worry that a lot of the scholarship that is done never gets into the hands of teachers. So who does it get in the hands of that can then help make a difference for practitioners in classrooms or for districts? It's probably our middle-level colleagues, people who are instructional coaches, that's what we call them here, uh, instructional leaders, perhaps even principals or assistant principals, people in what we call educational service districts. I'm sure there's a parallel in the island in the Europe. So those are the people, I think, who may have a chance to read more of what we write. There is a growing movement in different, different parts of the country at different universities to begin to write for educators. And, and administrators as well, write directly for them. And the, the challenge is always, if it doesn't look and sound like, you know, really theoretical research, are your colleagues at the university going to give you credit for that? That's another like a political question within our higher ed institutions. A lot of our scholarship does not make it to the classroom. I think that's, that's right. Can you think of one question in science education that has been resolved insofar as it can be? Well, this is going to sound trivial, but I think that everyone would agree that having students work in groups in a classroom setting, in small groups, at least for part of the time, is hugely beneficial, especially if it's structured well for the students. There's no researchers and very few teachers who think that kids should always be facing forward in the class and never interacting with their peers. So well-constructed group work that is equitable and rigorous at the same time is pretty well understood to be something that you should see if you walked into most any classroom. And is there a question in science education that is still wide open? Well, one question uh, about discourse, which I talked to you earlier about, it is so important to, to be facile and supportive with classroom talk, both not just you, but allowing your students to say things at particular times and engage in certain kinds of conversations. That is, that is really important. I think we still don't know why that's so difficult 
to see an action in classrooms. In American classrooms, you will not often see really great examples of productive academic discourse in that classroom, in that 50 minute period that you visit, you probably won't see it. And we cannot figure out why it's not making that leap from the research material into classroom practice. The other thing that we are puzzled about is the use of technology in classrooms. With COVID, clearly a lot of people are saying that distance learning or hybrid learning or learning at a, at a distance online, whatever you want to call it, has not worked very well. I don't know how it worked in, in Europe, but I do know in the US during COVID when kids were online, they, saw, they suffered both emotionally and relationally with the teacher and other kids and their math and literacy scores suffered. So technology for all of its promise, it was not the way to go during the COVID. Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of people would agree with you on that. Um, finally, Mark, we're coming near the end. So there's just a few general questions that I ask all guests. So I'd like to put some of them to you now. And the first one is, what is school for? Or what are schools for? I think that that is changing. Of course, we could always argue that it's changing. But I think schools are no longer supposed to be isolated from the larger community. I think a lot of people are recognizing that schools should have porous boundaries with the community. People from the community, issues in the community should make their way into schools. So I think that congruence between school and the supporting community is really important. What are they for? I think a lot of people critique the image of schools as just preparing students to be functionaries in an economy. Yes, we do want them to have meaningful work as they graduate, be prepared for that. But is that the only reason we have them spend so much of their young lives in schools? Absolutely not. There are social emotional components that we have to start building into our curriculum. Ethical and moral ideas have to be woven in, especially if we want to do climate change teaching. Kids have to understand that the world is more than just their community and the U.S., that phenomena are happening all over the world. Schools should serve that critical consciousness as well. And that sounds like a fluffy idea. And in, indeed, it is hard to have teachers agree on what, what does it mean to achieve those kinds of goals in school. It's really easy to think about how we're going to get kids to improve their math scores. But for the kids to develop critical consciousness about, for example, the climate and how it's changing and their own futures, that's the work we're engaged in right now. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? I had a biology teacher in high school who just encouraged us to do some work in the community. And I had never had that. I grew up in a high school situation that was really, really formal and really status quo. And teachers mostly lectured most of the time. In fact, I can barely remember doing any group work. But I had a biology teacher who did just a couple things different. I mean, I worked with my peers in small groups, and I thought, this is unusual. It's very cool. I get to talk to not only my friends, but people who are not my friends, but I got to know them in this, in this group work. 
This teacher was inspired, too, to do his own scientific work outside the school. And he would tell us, you know, I'm not just teaching science. I also do research myself outside of school. It's kind of on my own. And we looked at each other and we thought, no, that is pretty cool. This teacher is walk on the walk. So I was always impressed with, with that, that year in my life in that biology classroom. And it's good that he made that visible to you. Yes. I mean, there are some teachers who don't make any part of their own lives apparent to students, but it kind of goes back to the theme we talked about a few minutes ago about establishing respectful and trustful relationships with kids to open up a little bit of yourself. Here's who I am. Here's what I enjoy doing. You know, with our novice teachers, I always encourage them when they go into their classroom I always say you should talk your mentor teacher in allowing you to show just one PowerPoint slide and show a little bit about the kind of science that you're interested in, show a little bit about your family, and show a hobby that you're interested in. Have those three pictures up. And that will start decreasing that psychological distance between you and the children right there. It will have a positive effect. And sure enough, when they actually, when my novices do that, they come back to me and they say, you know, I had a couple of kids come up to me after class and say, I saw your hobby was rock climbing and my uncle does rock climbing. I'm going to do rock climbing. And that is why we do that kind of sharing. Finally, Mark, have you a favorite writer, book or blog about education? I respected deeply the writing of uh, a faculty member from the University of Michigan. Originally, his name was David Cohen, and he wrote in great depth about how we translate disciplinary knowledge to to become part of a classroom where kids are making meaning out of some very complex ideas. And so David Cohen wrote about this in some very convincing ways. So I would say he was somebody whose work I could put to work right away. He had an, an immense number of very practical ideas for use in classrooms. Is there a particular book or article? I mean, I'm thinking of teaching and its predicaments, or is there another one? You hit it. You got the nail right on the head. Teaching and its predicaments is the book I was thinking of. And I too really like that book, Teaching and Its Predicaments by David Cohen. I want to thank Professor Mark Winchettel from the University of Washington in Seattle for his time in recording this podcast. His current book, Ambitious Science Teaching, and his upcoming book on teaching climate change would be good places to find out more about Mark and his work in science education. Well, that brings us to the end of this Inside Education podcast. You can listen back to more than 425 previous episodes by going to my website, seandelaney.com and clicking on the podcasts tab. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd or write to me by email with comments or suggestions to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, was published by Routledge and is available on Kindle and as an audiobook from Audible and on other audiobook platforms. I look forward to being back with a new podcast soon and thank you for listening today. Your support is appreciated. Music